So with the number of children we have in our congregation, I imagine a number of you have seen the animated comedy, the Lego movie. In the Lego movie, we're taken on a journey into a world where everything is awesome, but not everything stays so awesome. The evil Lord business decides to suppress creativity, fix the world under his control. He has the ultimate weapon, otherwise known as the craggle. The story then focuses on a lowly character named Emmett Rakowski. The special, he ends up saving the day with the piece of resistance. But very close toward the end of the movie, the camera pans outward to a basement filled with a father's expensive Lego sets. And his son, Finn, is being a bit more creative with Legos than uh, the father would like. His father's perfectionism smothers his own creativity. He wants to glue all of the pieces together. To our discovery, the story of Emmett defeating Lord Business is actually a story within a story. The larger story giving further depth and meaning to the smaller story. We don't know about the larger story to the very end. A story within a much greater story. Something similar happens in the book of Ruth. The events in Ruth focus on everyday happenings in the life of one family from the little town of Bethlehem. We we walk with them through their sin and their loss and, and their grief and then find the Lord's kindness working in simple ways through Ruth stumbling upon the field of Boaz and Boaz bringing fullness to Naomi's emptiness. But just as you reach the end of their story we're caught up into a much larger story. We find a genealogy extending from Perez to David, from generations past to generations future of a royal line in Israel. It's as if the the camera pans outward and signals that this story of Ruth reveals way more than we initially expected. It's not just about Ruth finding a husband. It's not just about... Naomi, finding an heir, it's about all of us finding hope in the Lord, who is the true Redeemer and who promises to send a Redeemer King. But before we go there, we need to see if Boaz remains faithful to his pledge. That's where we left off. Boaz is a worthy man in Israel. Ruth is a worthy woman. He's he's committed to helping the helpless. She's committed to helping the helpless. It's a match made in heaven. They want to get married. We want them to get married. She says, spread your wings over your servant. He accepts. Magic is in the air. It just happens to be this one little snag. Or should I call him a punk? Somebody else is in line to redeem Ruth. There's a redeemer nearer than Boaz, chapter 3 said. He gets first dibs on redeeming the land and the family. But if this fella doesn't redeem Ruth, Boaz promises he will. He won't rest until Ruth is redeemed. What's going to happen next with this other fella? Will he redeem her or not? None of us want him to. We want Boaz. We're supposed to feel the suspense here. Sometimes we don't feel the suspense, since many of us know the ending of this story. Especially since I just told you the end of the story. Again, I've told you the end of the story four weeks in a row. It's like a kid who likes to tell the punchline of the joke before the joke is finished. 
So pretend like you didn't know the ending. Or the story won't impact you the way it's designed to impact you. What's, what's going to happen with this other guy? That's where chapter 4 picks up, where we see the redemption of Ruth and Naomi pursued. The redemption pursued by Boaz. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. The ESV uses friend. There's another translation that uses Mr. So-and-so. Okay? The point is that we're already getting a negative vibe for this guy. He's not even willing to name him. We'll see why. Turn aside, friends. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took the men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi... Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Let's recall the role of a Redeemer kinsman redeemer. This kind of redeemer was a close relative who was responsible for the economic well-being of another relative. When the relative happened upon a crisis and couldn't get out of it, the redeemer stepped in to rescue. Well, quite relevant for understanding Ruth was the redeemer's ability to buy back property. The point being to to keep the property within the clan that the Lord had given it to. In this case, Naomi is in a bit of a jam. We're never told what her husband Elimelech did with the land when they ran off to Moab. It could have ended up in the hands of outsiders. It, it, uh, he could have left it to, for others to tend it until they returned. Well, Elimelech ends up dying. As the story goes, Naomi returns to Bethlehem. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a grandson left to inherit the land. And under the law, widows without a husband or heir weren't permitted to keep ownership of their land. So Naomi was too old to keep it up anyway to this point. Whatever she has, she must sell it. But if there was a way for somebody within her husband's family to redeem it, if there was a male relative who had the means to purchase it and farm it so she could benefit from it, even better, if there was a man who could also provide an heir for Naomi, maybe by marrying uh, Ruth, all the while holding on to the land until the child grows up, maybe the land would actually stay in not only just in the clan, but within Naomi's family. Boaz pursues both the redemption of Elimelech's property and the marriage of Ruth to perpetuate not his own name, doesn't want to, he's not perpetuating his own name here. It's important to note. But the name of the dead. 
Elimelech, Malan, Killian. It's a selfless act of redemption. Even when the law doesn't mention the exact situation in which Boaz finds himself. Remember, he's no brother-in-law. He has no obligation to redeem. But the principles within God's law are directing him to act in this way. To love, to redeem, to to show mercy, to show grace, to to look out for Ruth and Naomi's well-being. Not so much with Mr. So-and-so. As long as redeeming Naomi means getting the rights to the land, he's all in. I will redeem it. Seems like a good business deal. Naomi's too old to have an heir. That means if I buy it from her, I have no risk of losing it to him. More than that, he gains the reputation of showing kindness by redeeming Ruth's property in front of all these guys at the gate. Sure, I'll redeem it. Look at me. And this is where Boaz presses him. How far is this guy's kindness really going to go? The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz is pressing him. Are you going to show this kindness here? Are you going to show what the spirit of the law is actually pointing us to here? Is that what's in you? And at that point, he's out. The reason given, he says, lest I impair my own inheritance. Was it the fact that he'd have a widowed mother-in-law and now also a wife to support? Was it the fact that by marrying Ruth and having a child, he'd actually perpetuate Elimelech's name instead of his own? Or was it the fact that Ruth is a foreigner, a Moabite? Maybe it was a combination of all three. The point is that this fellow is willing to be part of the covenant people just as long as he doesn't have to sacrifice anything. He's willing to show kindness just as long as it involves no risk, no sacrifice, no ultimate cost to his own name. He's willing to pay just as long as you're not asking to invite another race into my people. He's willing to follow the commandments when he can see the immediate blessings, but otherwise he doesn't want to follow the law. In the narrator's eyes, this is what makes him not even worth naming. People who, only, who live only to make a name for themselves don't deserve to have a name at all. People who limit the extent to which their kindness will go, their reputation isn't one to remember, is the message here. People who only obey God when it's convenient and doesn't mess up their stuff deserve to pass out of memory. And that's a sobering thought worth returning to in a moment. But for now, it's simply good for us to note how much this fella contrasts Boaz's kindness. Boaz is willing to redeem Ruth and Naomi too, regardless of the cost to himself. Boaz follows the law even while knowing that it's for the sake of someone else's name in in, in this other inheritance. Unlike Mr. So-and-so, Boaz is reflecting true kindness. That brings us to the redemption confirmed. Boaz and the elders of the city, they, they confirm his redemption of Elimelech's property and of Ruth. Verse 7, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. 
to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead. So not Boaz's name, but perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. You have to laugh. I mean, I wonder how long they hang on to these shoes, right? The sandal. Somebody come back in, like, ah, I got the sandal. The idea here is that this is functioning like a notarization. Boaz seals the deal. He remains faithful to his pledge. The elders approve the redemption. But it's much more than a business transaction going on here. Everybody at the gate celebrates Boaz finally marrying Ruth. And, and that comes out in, in this loaded threefold blessing. This isn't just politeness by the people at the gate. Like, oh, bless you after you sneeze. Blessing comes within a covenant context. For them to bless Boaz and Ruth was for them to want God to, to, sh- to shower upon them the blessings that, that he had promised to Abraham. The first blessing comes in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who, built, who together built up the house of Israel. So you remember the twelve tribes of Israel came from Rachel and Leah. This is a, a huge blessing because Ruth is a Moabite. But here she gains the, the status that's equal to one of the patriarchal mothers in Israel. At one level, the hope is that Ruth will bear many children for Israel, that God would multiply her offspring like he promised to multiply Abraham's offspring. In fact, Ruth is is evidence that Abraham's offspring weren't going to come solely from Israelites, but from the nations as well. All the nations. At another level, though, it's not just Ruth's children in and of themselves that will build up Israel, but Ruth's relentless kindness passed along through the children that will build up Israel. It's her covenant loyalty that will hopefully rebuild Israel. The idea is something like, oh, that that generations and generations like Ruth would come forth to rebuild Israel, not just physically, but spiritually. A second blessing comes in verse 11 for Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. So they not only want Boaz's name to be remembered, they want the strength of his loyal and gracious character to become famous in Bethlehem. So this is in contrast to Mr. So-and-so. His name's forgotten. Boaz, we want your name to be remembered in Bethlehem. You ever 
watch a really good athlete hit a home run or score a touchdown or land a dismount. They do it so often that they become famous for these things. And as a kid, you know, you can't help but want to go outside and imitate them right after you see them. Okay, Boaz is that guy in this story. The one to imitate. The hero. He, they, all, they want all the men in Bethlehem to remember him and imitate his strength of character. They don't want him to be famous just to be famous, but because this man knows God's word and this man walks in God's ways. Which is a big deal considering that these were the days of the judges. Remember, there was a famine in the land, a spiritual famine, a famine of godly men. Read the book of Judges. And they longed that Bethlehem would, would be different because of Boaz. I'd say God answered their prayer in part by inspiring the book of Ruth. He has been remembered. The third blessing comes in verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Back in Genesis 49, Judah is the line God chose to to bring forth a a royal offspring for Abraham. Judah was going to be elevated above his brothers. He was going to defeat all of his enemies. He was the one that was going to be like the the lion that brings back the prey. He he was going to gain all the obedience of the nations until all the the lands flowed with wine and... uh, It's just a prosperous kingdom. Well, Judah ends up having five sons. The line doesn't continue through the first three, but then through Tamar, he ends up having Perez and Zerah. And the royal Perez, uh, the royal line continues through, through Perez. So their hope is that Boaz and Ruth eventually preserve the royal line of, of Judah and ultimately Abraham. So huge blessings here, and the Lord is the only one who can really answer any of them. In fact, that's part of the point of this, of this blessing, of the, and that's part of the point of all the prayers and blessings in the book of Ruth. As you read Ruth, you don't really see all of these direct references to the Lord doing this, and the Lord doing this next, and the Lord do, but you see them praying and, 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 and blessing people, and the Lord answering those prayers and those blessings. So what, is that, what, what, what that's saying is that the true Redeemer in this story is Yahweh, is the Lord. Nothing of true and lasting significance will grow out of the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Buzz unless the Lord himself acts. The Lord was the one who took away the bread and, and then gave the bread. He's the one who rescued Ruth from Moab and filled Naomi's emptiness. He's the one who brought Ruth and Boaz together. He, he's the one who... who, who who must act in answering all, the, all these fut- blessings for their future, too. The Lord is the true Redeemer here. So all eyes are not just watching Ruth and Boaz. Everybody wants to know if the true Redeemer, the Lord himself, is, gonna, is going to advance this story any further. Will, will we see the Lord redeem? And, and how will we see these, these covenant blessings, these, these, these wishes they have upon Boaz and Ruth, how, do we, how will we see them come to fruition? And that leads us to one last part. As the book of Ruth draws to a close, we witness the redemption consummated. The redemption consummated, not only for Ruth the Gentile, not only for Naomi the Israelite, but also for all of us. 
First, in verse 13, we see Ruth's redemption. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. So the Lord is fulfilling the blessings here. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. In chapter 1, Ruth lost her husband. She left her home, and uh, she had no heir. Ten, Ten years without an heir. Now Ruth has a husband, a home, and an heir. And all by the Lord's gracious doing. But is there more about this heir than we first think? Look look next at Naomi's redemption in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. So again, the Lord is doing the work here. Answering the blessings. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And they're talking about Ruth's son now. Not Boaz anymore, but the son. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, that is, his, his nanny. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. So she get the heir. And with the heir, the inheritance stays in there. He says, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Why? Because your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. That's a big deal in Israel when your inheritance is dependent on your sons. Ruth is worth more than seven sons. Has given birth to him. In other words, the son will be to Naomi a restorer and a nourisher because that's what his mama was like. His mama is going to train him in the Lord's kindness, and the hope is that the son will exemplify the Lord's kindness. Just a little side note here for mothers. You have the incredible opportunity to pass along to your children covenant loyalty and relentless kindness. So that those children then become that for others. Don't ever think that serving your kids till you're weary every day of the week is a waste. I know it feels like a waste some days, but the Lord can use your sacrifices mightily to bring forth children to restore and to nourish others. Whether physical children or spiritual children. Anyway, Naomi had lost her husband and both sons. She had no one to perpetuate Elimelech's name or to preserve his inheritance, but now the Lord had provided an heir. They even call the son a redeemer since since he'll be able to continue the name and, and preserve the inheritance in the promised land. Naomi said before that the Lord had brought her back empty, but now she was holding in her bosom the fullness of life, 
the fullness of, of hope for her future. The story would seem to, rent, to end rather well on that note. It seems like all the bows have been tied around the gift. But it doesn't end there. The camera begins to zoom out and we find a story within a greater story. Verse 17, actually, it shocks us. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The choir sang earlier from Isaiah chapter 11, which talks about a shoot going forth from Jesse. He was going to be the one to bring the kingdom they were singing about, the kingdom of peace. He was the father of that Jesse, the father of David. Wow, we, we just went from small town family blessings to massive promises that span all of salvation history. This, these events happened within the days of the judges. But they were written about and intentionally connected together sometime after David was king in Israel. Meaning that David is the point of the story. The point of the story isn't merely about Ruth and Boaz. It's about the Lord's faithfulness to preserve the royal line leading up to David. Ruth and Boaz, their lives actually become a window through which we see God's covenant loyalty and relentless kindness to the world. Even in the dark and desperate days of the judges, God was still working out His promise to Abraham to produce a royal offspring to save Israel and to save the world. That's the point of the genealogy in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Who, by the way, was married to Rahab? Boaz's dad married a Canaanite. It's remarkable. Providence here. He grew up in a home with a Canaanite mom. And he's marrying a Moabite. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Ten generations. Ten generations are also listed in Genesis 5 as the story of the, uh, follows the offspring from Adam to Noah. Ten generations are also listed in Genesis 11, where it follows uh, Shem, who's Noah's, Noah's son, all the way to Abraham. Now we're getting ten generations again. It follows Judah's son all the way to David. In other words, there's a theological point being made here, not just a historical one. God is directing all of history to his appointed end to save the world. The story of Ruth gets caught up into God's larger story that's moving from Adam to Noah 
to Abraham, to Judah and Perez, now on and through Boaz to David. David, as in the David for whom God promised to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The same David you hear about at Christmas time in texts like Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This David. And in the New Testament, the Lord's purpose through David reaches its climax, we know, in Jesus Christ. So we have the fulfillment of this plan through David. In Christ, the the same genealogy that you see here in Ruth, it gets reproduced later on in Matthew chapter 1, before the birth narrative of Jesus. Although Matthew connects it from, uh, from Abraham through David all the way to after exile to Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. And what do we learn about this Jesus, this son that was born to Mary? Oh, we learn that he's much, much, much greater than all of the Davids that preceded him. He was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1 also tells us that his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from his sins, from from their sins. Boaz could could buy back the land for Naomi. Boaz could buy back Ruth in marriage. But Boaz could never make a, uh, could pay a price that would deliver them from their sins. This Jesus, this son of David can. He would actually save his people from their sins. You see, we know that Boaz himself was a sinner. That's why we have the genealogy. His generation passed on. He died. Then came this later, di- this later guy. And then he died. And then came this later guy. And he died. And none of them rose from the dead. Not so with Christ. By contrast, Jesus died. And then he rose again. He had no sin to keep him in the grave. The only sins he took to the grave were our sins. And he left them there. No more to be counted against us. He saved his people from their sins. That's who this son of David is. We also learn that Jesus, this son of David, is Emmanuel. He is truly God with us. He's not merely a man like Boaz and David and others. No, no. He is fully man and fully God. God in the flesh. He's worthy of worship even. Matthew chapter 2, the the wise men, they go to the house. They see the child with, with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and they worship him. And then opening their treasures, they offer him gifts of gold, frankincense, and and myrrh. Only God is worthy of worship throughout the scriptures. Everything else is false worship. Jesus is the true son of David, the true son of Abraham. Jesus is the one redeemer in whom all of God's blessings come to us. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that that it's in Christ that we have gained every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You think these blessings, that they're 
asking God to dump out on Boaz and Ruth are, are awesome. You ought to hear, just read your New Testament, all the blessings God is lavishing upon us in Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the redemption of our bodies, life everlasting, the gift of the Spirit, inheriting the earth. The redemption of Ruth and Naomi by Boaz isn't just about the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. It's ultimately about the Lord's redemption of Gentile and Jew alike in the true Redeemer, in the true Son of David, Jesus Christ. And so it's pointing to our redemption as well. What an awesome picture of the Lord's sovereign grace in the midst of this dark time of the judges. And yet he's working his will to save us and show us kindness. So what can we gain from a story like this one? How, how can we leave different than, than when we arrived? Well, one way the book of Ruth can change us is by changing the way we understand the law within itself when, when we're reading the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, it, it forbid any Moabite from entering the Lord's assembly into the 10th generation. But here we find Ruth, a Moabite, incorporated into God's people and incorporated while the Mosaic Covenant was still in place. Ruth's inclusion to God's people shouldn't be seen as a contradiction of that law any more than it was a contradiction for the Lord to include Rahab into the people of God in Joshua. Rather, Ruth's inclusion is an example of how the law applied. The law was never meant as some arbitrary exclusion of any and every foreigner except these Israelites. It only excluded those who refused to identify themselves with the Lord and the covenant that He put in place. It was still possible for a Moabite to become a Jew. To become a Jew. A true Jew. 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 I still said it. Jew. A true Jew who is circumcised inwardly of the heart. The question was, who do you identify yourself with? The Lord was happy to include those who sided with Him. So it would be good for us to remember this when we, when we read these strict commandments in, in, in the law and be careful that we don't walk away with a picture of God that's inaccurate. Is this arbitrary ogre who just likes to cut people off. The law may be strict. God is holy, but it still comes from a kind and merciful Father. He would show mercy if they chose to identify with Him. Ruth chose to identify with Him, and by doing so, she gained the blessings of the covenant, even, even included her within the lineage of Jesus Christ, which is one of the beautiful aspects of the, of the Christmas story. Anybody is welcome. It's one of the beautiful aspects when you start, not in verse 18 of Matthew, but actually read the genealogy before it, you see all these Gentile women. He didn't list... Rachel and Leah in the lineage of Jesus, they list Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba and uh, Tamar. 
Anybody is welcome, in other words. Regardless of race or class or background, the question is, who do you identify yourself with? Who do you identify yourself with? Now that the new covenant is established, I mean, do, do, you, do you identify yourself with, with Jesus Christ? Would your co-workers know that you belong to Christ? Would your neighbors? What is it about your life that really marks you as a Christ follower? How do people around you see you taking refuge in the Lord, uh, for example, through your suffering? Like we see here with Ruth. Identifying with Jesus isn't just coming to church and going through the motions of Christianity. It's giving over every loyalty to Christ. It's abiding in the covenant and following the terms that are spelled out in that covenant. It's following in Ruth's humble and loyal footsteps. Even after losing a husband, she she still leaves her gods. She still leaves her family. She still leaves her husband. Even at her, her homeland, even after losing her husband, she leaves everything that's precious for her, still that she had anything left that she could have to cling to so that she could gain the Lord and that she could gain His blessings in His promised land under His rule with His people. That's what she wants. And for that kind of faith, she was incorporated into David and ultimately into Christ. And speaking of being used for his, his good purpose, as we're incorporated into Christ and we give everything to the Lord so that it might be used for, for his purpose, let's return to Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so lived only to make a name for himself, and thus he didn't deserve to have a name at all. By contrast, Boaz lives to make a name, to make a name for someone else, He's the one that gains the reputation in Bethlehem. See, true kindness willingly gives all to see others redeemed, to see others inheriting God's blessings. And and that kind of kindness will be rewarded. We we will get a name that will never pass away. God will write a name on a stone. He talks about it in Revelation. This is the reward that's coming for those who remain faithful in kindness to others. But true kindness willingly gives all to see others redeemed, to see others inheriting God's blessings. What about you? Whose name do you live for? Are you like Mr. So-and-so who likes to play it safe in order to preserve your own name? God commands us to love and show mercy and risk everything for Christ's name, but, but you find yourself sizing everything up. How much is it going to cost me? If it's this much, I'm out. Are you like the rich young ruler who brags to Jesus of how well he keeps the law? But when Jesus told him to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor, he walked away from Jesus sorrowful. The opportunity for mercy was there. The opportunity was there. He had the resources but he couldn't follow Jesus. He loved his stuff too much. 
What about you? Do you follow Jesus' commandments, but only to the degree that they have immediate material benefit to you? Are you a Christian just because it's the comfortable thing to do? When the opportunity to show kindness and build God's kingdom through kindness is present, do you walk away to build your own kingdom? Do you find yourself willing to love others just as long as it doesn't keep costing you anything emotionally, anything financially, anything physically? Boaz exemplifies the true kindness throughout this story. He gives everything for those who cannot pay him back. Of course, he's the pointer to Jesus. And what Jesus' kindness looks like is Jesus laid down his life for our sake. You see, Jesus foregoes his right to be seen as glorious, and he takes the form of a servant. Jesus has the name above all names, but he chooses to die in order to give us a name in his kingdom. True kindness has a cross at its center. And that cross bids us to come and die. Die to self-glory. Die to storing up our treasures on the earth. Die to to self-seeking ambitions, die to laziness and self-pity and endless hours of escape on ESPN and social media or whatever else you veg out on. We die to these things in order to see others live. If we don't, we lose our soul. If we do, we gain every blessing in Christ. And we have every reason to pour ourselves into Christ's kingdom more than we do. And into others for Christ's kingdom more than we do. Times may be dark and society falling to pieces around us, but God hasn't forsaken His covenant love. Ruth teaches us that. that. God's commitment to save his, His people never wavered, even in the darkest of times. Just like it was during, during the dark days of the judges, it is, it is while we were still sinners that God was working to save us. And that includes not only how He works in the big and the miraculous, it also includes how He works in the small and the mundane, like, like we see here. I mean, He's at work in suffering and loss. He's at work in grief. He's at work in famines and in times of harvest. He's at work in our vocations. And then uh, also at work when we're barely scraping by. He's at work when we're faced with risky plans. And he's at work in the romance between a husband and a wife. He's even at work through the inconveniences of a Mr. So-and-so. All of it is serving his sovereign purpose. If, if the Lord is faithful through all of this, if, 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 if he never wavers in accomplishing his goal for history and his kingdom advancing into the world, then everything in our lives as children of God becomes meaningful. Every hour of our lives becomes Meaningful. Everything we choose to devote ourselves to should should carry out the Lord's purpose of kindness and covenant loyalty. Every relationship becomes opportunity to advance the Lord's kingdom of kindness. There are no interruptions to our lives. There are only providences. See, every situation becomes an opportunity to ask, what is the Lord doing next to advance His purpose in Christ through me? 
Every unexpected pause in our plans should direct our hearts and minds back to the Lord who uses all things to carry out His one purpose in Christ. So we ask Him, whatever we face, whatever comes to us, we ask Him, Lord, what what part do I play right now in Your story? Is this another opportunity to show Your kindness to someone? How how can I glorify Your name and and love Your your people? What are You asking me to let go of? What are You asking me to, to embrace? Even when we find ourselves deeply confused, even hurt, by the people and the circumstances in life. I mean, the book of Ruth reminds us that our stories aren't ultimately about us. Our stories aren't ultimately about us. Our stories don't center on us. Our stories don't find their meaning in us and their significance in us. Our stories are serving a much greater story. God's story. The story of the son of David. So everything we walk through, or better, everything that he brings to us is ultimately for his sake. Whether those things are are peaceful or painful. Whether those things are relaxing or are heart-rending. Whether they are joyful or jarring or surprising or suffering. It's all happening so that Your life and mine, your reputation and mine, your sacrifices and mine, they all become one big pointer to what God is doing through the Son of David. At Christmas time, we celebrate that Jesus came. The Son of David came. But we also know the rest of the story in Scripture is that the Son of David will come again. The Lion of the tribe of Judah will come again. The question for us is, how is your story pointing others to this son of David? How will you change so that your stories more and more and more as you grow in the Lord and as you grow in knowledge of his ways, how will your story point others to him? Let's pray together.